0: Yo. This is WMF Tampa. Here comes the sun. Doo-doo-doo.
1: Here comes the sun. And
2: I say it's all right. Good morning, and welcome to the Sustainable Living Show here on WMNF Tampa 88.5, where every Monday at 11, we bring you a conversation with local experts on sustainable issues. Your hosts today are myself, Kenny Coogan, and the wonderful Annie Ellis. Hey, Kenny. Hi, Annie. And of course, we have Mr. Bill Grace back in the studio.
3: Yes, so glad to see him. Yes, we are. He,
2: He runs it for us. He keeps us in check. He sure does. So, um, I'm very excited about our guest today. We're going to be talking about commercial urban agriculture in Florida, but first, Annie, do you just, have
3: a- Yeah, you guys saw my look. Uh, <laughs> not just commercial, Not just commercial. There's a whole bunch of different agriculture that we do. It's about front yards. It's about roofs. It's about in containers. uh, It's about uh, uh, what I want to know about is peri-urban agriculture. I'm interested in finding out about that.
2: Okay. But before (laughs) we do that, do you have any... Uh, personal updates this past week?
3: Oh God, no! I had a headache for a week, so I'm I'm just happy to be here without a headache. Is all, all right. I can say. So what's happened with you? I know you're so exciting. You always have <laughs> plenty of cool stuff
2: happening. Huh? Um, not too much. Really? I well, I've been watching uh, John Oliver. John Oliver this week tonight, last week tonight. You know, it's on HBO. Yes. This week tonight, <laughs> but anyways, um, what he you can John watch Oliver. him on uh, YouTube. Last night was uh, carbon emissions. Oh, okay. and how so
3: he is an environmental guy. Um, not really. <laughs> What's his name? John Oliver. John Oliver, okay.
2: but last week was about Afghanistan and how Afghanistan is doing a year after we left. Oh, and I feel like I personally want to adopt a hundred. No, one million Afghan children because yeah. there's a horrible situation. I'm sure. And then last night Their was about um, these carbon credits and how it's like all a scam and how when you like click when you're you know in the airplane or uh-huh. on, on the air flight and they say like oh if for a dollar you can buy one thousand carbon oh, emission credits. Oh, so
3: you're just credits. giving a dollar to somebody. It's like a and pyramid scheme.
2: It's not really working because oh. they're buy- They're basically paying. People who own trees not to cut them down. Oh, well, that's good though, right? Well, the problem is they only don't have to cut them down for one year.
3: Oh.
2: And then if you, that well. neighbor cuts down the trees it's not really let me just
3: out. share this then with you I was reading about the oldest trees and uh, it was in my uh, Smithsonian magazine which is one of the few magazines I actually get in paper because I reread them and it's uh, there was a, this man that uh, he is documenting all this stuff and I want to talk about when we have our tree uh, meeting I mean our uh, show yeah but he (laughs) so sad uh he said that unless the trees it starts really sequestering carbon at 50 years Mm -hmm. okay so the 50 year old tree up to 300 to 500 years old are the ones we want and those are the ones that they're taking out and so just planting a tree isn't sequestering carbon i'm sorry to say if it is it's so microscopic it doesn't It doesn't really make a difference. So, saving
2: the big trees is really the most important thing. All right. So, just to make sure we're on the same page, it's last week, tonight, with John Oliver, HBO. And the episode last last night was carbon offsets. Carbon offsets. I'm a little bit. And yeah, another problem is let's say Disney. Well, we'll talk about Disney. They said <laughs> that, a lot to, uh, lot to unpack there. So they say, like, oh, we're saving uh, the equivalent of nine hundred thousand cars because we're saving a forest. But the problem is when you cut down the rainforest and you plant pine trees right. in Pennsylvania, right. those trees are not really equivalent to the same and the age. biodiversity and, of-
3: and the age and the biodiversity, like you just said, because unless things are biodiverse, it's not giving out the same stuff. It's not doing the same thing. It's not supporting. Mm-hmm. Not just the carbon sequestering, but it's not supporting the wildlife and all the fauna and the uh, you know the fungi and the, all that stuff that makes it. Yeah, the interconnected. Circle. Yeah, the interconnected circle. <sighs> well, oh, it's so sad. I, we
2: don't. I don't know if I have the solution, but I do like pointing out the problems. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, you know, until you see it, you can't it, it act on it. But I do encourage people to do things. You know, don't just sit here and listen and read and yeah. just get involved. Don't,
2: don't be a Couch conservationist. That's it. You got it. Do something.
3: Do something. Anything. And guess what? What?
2: We're going to start talking about our guests today. Yeah, That's
3: probably timing. Maybe
2: Catherine will have some uh, insight into oh, this. Oh, that would be good. And about how urban agriculture helps Well, too.
3: I think that Perry.
2: Uh, urban agriculture is going to be the mark on that. Well, we're going to find out.
3: Yeah,
2: we are. All right. Today we're talking with Catherine Campbell about commercial urban agriculture in Florida, specifically the needs, opportunities, and barriers. So stay tuned as we promote a balance of people, profit, and planet, because that's the definition of sustainability. we got to get all three of those tiers on equal footing to it's, be sustainable, it's very
3: true. Because if we don't, we have to we have to work together, or
2: uh, we just fight
3: with each other.
2: That's right. You know. So, so do you, so you want Ka- me to introduce? I can do it. Okay. So, Catherine Campbell is the. A- Assistant Professor and Extension Specialist of Community Food Systems in the Department of Family, Youth, and Community Services at UF-IFAS. She conducts social science research on food systems to support community health, sustainability, equity, and resilience. Her research focuses on understanding the behavior that seems to be key, motivation and decision-making of food systems stakeholders, including producers, consumers, and local governments. And she has a special focus on urban food systems. Welcome to the program, Catherine.
3: Hey, Catherine. Thank you very much. I want to correct something. It's the Specialist of Community Food Systems in the Department of Family, Youth, and Community Sciences at the University of Florida Institute of Food. But yes, though, you provide right. us a service, though, at the same time.
2: <laughs> All right. So, Catherine, today we're talking about urban agriculture. And can you tell us what that term means?
1: Yeah, I mean, that is a really a great question to start off Um It turns out that there actually is no standard definition of urban agriculture Uh, and the definitions that people use depend a little bit on their region, the country they're in, their field of study. Um, But in a very general sense, it's just food production or animal husbandry in urban or peri-urban areas. So there's that peri-urban term again. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can be commercial, um, which I just completed a multi-phase study on commercial urban agriculture in Florida, but it can also be non-commercial. So things like front yard, backyard gardens, community gardens. Um, And then there are also um, sort of hybrid kinds of urban agriculture operations that include both um, non-commercial and commercial um, operations. And so those are often um, a kind of nonprofit that grows food, some of which they sell and then other of of their products, they donate um, to members of the community that
2: need access to food. Can you tell the listeners what peri-agriculture is? Thank you.
1: Yeah, so <laughs> peri-urban, the term peri-urban just refers to um, areas on the perimeter. So that's where the peri comes from. Um, on the perimeter of urban areas, so you have sort of your standard urban core um, that would be, you know, a down developed downtown, um, and then you have suburban areas, and then the peri-urban are the ones that are sort of on the outside of that. And you know, with the increasing urbanization here in Florida, a lot of areas that used to be rural are now becoming sort of peri-urban areas as our development creeps out mm-hmm. um, outward into those formerly
2: rural areas. Yeah, we definitely have a lot of urban sprawl. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we
3: also have a lot of uh, urban gardeners, too. That, so there's right. that. That's
2: very good. Yeah. On uh, Facebook and Instagram, I'm always being bombarded with, like, before and after pictures, like like 1950, this is the ideal front oh, yard, yard.
3: With grass. And then the tree. grass,
2: and then they go, now yeah. look at this yard. And it's yeah. all biodiverse, and there's food. So what are the benefits of growing food in urban areas. Yeah,
1: that another really great question. There, there are a number of benefits um, that have been documented in the research literature on um, the benefits of urban agriculture. Um, they sort of primarily fall in sort of four buckets, as it were. Um, there are, um, you know, social and community benefits for how they can help tie people together, Um, they promote opportunities for intergenerational interaction. So for example, grandparents gardening with children um, or people having an opportunity to be outside um, doing things with their neighbors. Um, So there are those kinds of social and community benefits. There are um, opportunities for education and um, job development training. There are economic benefits um, for providing opportunities opportunities for entrepreneurial um, activities in cities. Uh, There are health and wellness benefits, like I already mentioned, including access to healthy food, um, providing people with opportunities for physical activity. For example, research has shown that um, gardeners get the uh, recommended amount of physical activity from gardening, from medium level physical activity. Um, And then finally, and I think of interest to um, your listeners is there are a lot of environmental and sustainability kinds of benefits from, you know, reducing heat island effects, promoting plant diversity, pollinator habitat, um, and then reducing, you know, food miles and um, greenhouse gas emissions from food transportation. So a lot of
2: benefits to urban agriculture um, in Florida. Before the show, we were talking about the beautiful state of Hawaii, and I went a couple of years ago, and in the in a very urban area where there could have been like three houses, it was a community garden, and in my city here, or not my city, my little town, my little whatever it's called. Berg. <laughs> yeah, Berg of Tampa. We also have them, but the Hawaii system just seemed... People seem to be more involved in it, and it was really great because there's, like, older people who have their plots, but also, also the younger people, and they're, like, really exchanging
3: ideas and knowledge. I lived there for eight years, and, um, and people are just more sensitive to plant materials there. You know what I mean? Like, And then you'll see, like, the, the little Asian uh, gardeners that are, like, Unbelievably knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, you know, I learned so much from them, uh, just so much. But you're right, it's just a green space. And they're also a lot more conscious about invasive species because uh, so much has happened to that island because of it.
2: But anyway. I def, I definitely. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, inspiring to yeah, say the least. It is, it is. So before we move on, and, and we're definitely going to be talking about your study that was just published in June of 2022. But Catherine, are there any downsides to urban agriculture that we should be aware of?
1: Yeah, I think you know maybe downsides, or perhaps thinking of them as sort of limitations um, in terms of the benefits that it can accrue. I think um, some people tend to think that urban agriculture is going to solve sort of all of the world's problems. Um, and, you know, there are some limitations. Like, for example, I mentioned um, the physical activity benefits and, and sort of dietary benefits of community gardening. Research literature has shown that those really only accrue to the community garden gardeners. Um, and so, you know, it's not necessarily going to change the diets of, all members of a community. Um, and in terms of that economic and community development kind of benefit that it may have that also has been shown to lead to gentrification, um, which sometimes displaces populations that the oh. operations were set up to help in the first place.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, and so it's important to be conscious of those kinds of um, potential downsides, as well as you're know, thinking about um, commercial Food production, you know, farms in general have a difficult time being financially sustainable, uh, and there are a lot of issues of doing commercial production in urban spaces due to um, the cost of land and land accessibility, and so it's it's hard for them to be viable financially in the long term.
3: Well, not everybody. Uh, I know our friend Jim Kowaloski over in uh, in uh, Newport Richie, uh, he gardens uh, three. Uh, big beds, uh, big yards in front of him, which they are larger. Well, it's actually two, but it's they're larger sizes than normal. And uh, he feeds 50 families a week. So, you know, it just depends on how you do it, who you are, what you've been doing. He's improved the area uh, dramatically because he does it in a beautifully visual way uh, and it's all organic. So it just depends on how you do it. You know what I mean? Like- yeah.
1: Yeah, that's I mean, that's exactly the thing is, you know, the people who are able to balance those those three parts of sustainability, like you mentioned, um, are are able to make it work. Um, but a lot of urban farmers are sort of new to it right. um, and they they may not quite understand the people side, the environmental side. And the financial side. Yeah, that's
3: probably true. I mean, you have to do it for a while or, you know, pick people's brains that know what they're doing on that. I mean, that's what I I constantly am asking people questions about things to be better. Because I I have a small, small garden and I feed my uh, neighbors and also the kids come over and learn. Uh, So there's the the age interaction, like you were saying, and uh, and the education. So Mm -hmm. it's there. It's amazing so uh, what do, what do you you want to talk about uh the published study uh, yeah Kenny?
2: so uh we reached out to Catherine because i saw that she published a study called commercial urban agriculture in florida needs opportunities and barriers so Catherine, how did you get data for this study Perfect. yeah
1: so um this this study was actually funded um, by an internal funding initiative at the university of florida institute of food and agricultural sciences um, where the the purpose of the funding was to look at new enterprises in Florida um, and think about how we can move agriculture f- forward in Florida, and I noticed a lot of interest, sort of both at, at the university as well as you know in in the community about urban agriculture, and. Um, The USDA uh, does a census of agriculture, which is used to collect data on the size and scope of farms, commercial farms in general. What are they growing? um, You know, how old are the farmers? All of those kinds of statistics you tend to hear about agriculture. But they've said that they don't actually systematically include urban farms and they tend to uh, not capture historically marginalized farmers. Um, So the purpose of the study for me was to get a better sense of what what is going on with commercial urban agriculture in Florida. And it was funded through the university. Um, And we started by doing interviews of 30 urban farmers to get a sense of the sort of rich nuance in their perspectives that you can't get just from a survey. And then we also conducted a follow up survey that was informed by what we heard in those interviews. Um so that that was all done over the course of 2020 through
2: um last summer. That was that was our means of data collection. Do you have graduate students helping you or is this all you?
1: <laughs> I am lucky to have graduate students helping me with this. Um I would not have been able to yeah, do it all myself.
2: That was a good certainly. laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I'm just h- hoping that there was like young you know, young people, people graduate listening. students, but yeah. also like people who are interested in like right. saying, "Oh, I'm going to get a degree." And right, it can,
3: stimulates them to yeah. do more. Yeah, that's that's great. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I and I, I
1: think further to that point, uh, urban agriculture really resonates with people mm-hmm. um, because it's a way to connect with communities and people actually see it in ways they may not see a, a more rural farm. Um, and so I think this is this is really struck a chord with you know, both researchers and members of the community
2: that's good,
3: yeah, just when actually I was trying to think of, I was looking something up um, the you, Kenny sent me some links so I could read up <laughs> about you and such and uh, so of course, I love to read, so I read everything and uh, there was one group uh, uh, that is you know starting a it's like a little coalition and they it's all over the United States and they're setting up. Uh, like you contact them and they'll do some uh, puts together for studies for your school and so on. And Uh uh, and they're all super young. That's my whole point of making that. They're all so incredibly young and I'm so thrilled. I mean, I saw it as very basic uh, when I was looking at the things that they were doing, but you got to start somewhere. And you know what? Basic is good for people that don't know anything. Do you know and so yeah. it was but i was just thrilled to see the amount of young people that were that passionate about agriculture and teaching other people about agriculture i just thought it was and they had they had financial guys involved and everything so they were you know fully vetted in every single aspect of what that would be which was impressive to me i
2: i thought that was great well, that's definitely a cultural thing. I remember seeing a little like YouTube snippet of like a boy who was like three or four, and he was outside, mm-hmm. and he was like screaming, saying like, "The wind is touching me." Yeah, be- he was just like afraid of being outdoors, you know, fully. And then when I was a teacher, my students would get nail, you know, dirt under their nails. They would be out there. They'd get muddy. They would yeah. be growing plants. They would be eating stuff off of the vine.
3: Oh, they liked it?
2: Yeah, they loved it. Okay.
3: When I was little, my mother told me that I screamed any time a bug came around me. (laughs) And it was because I had been stung. And so I, you know, contacted bee sting to bad things. Well, now I'm just like, they're just all over me. I don't care. It's fine, but it took some
2: training. You You overcame it. I
3: overcame (laughs) my fear of bees. (laughs) All right. So,
2: Kathleen, you did the study, did lots of surveys. And then what did you find with how much land do these urban agriculture farms typically have?
1: Yeah. So, in in Florida, the average farm size um, of just in general, the average farm size is about 246 acres. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the case of these urban producers, um, we've got 15% of them are producing on less than 1,000 square feet. Oh, wow. Um, oh. And 40% of them are less than one acre. So, you know, by comparison, they're much, much smaller in their scale of production than traditional rural farms. And these are <laughs> commercial urban agriculture? And yes. And yeah, thank you for clarifying that. For our study, we required that they have some commercial component. So as I mentioned, some of them may be doing a hybrid operation where it's partially nonprofit, but there had to be some piece of it where they're actually commercially selling um, what they're producing.
3: That's fantastic. So still very small. Even That's fantastic commercial. that you found 30 of them with that range from a thousand to an acre. I'd love to know who they were. <laughs> well, well, I'll call you later.
2: <laughs> well, can you tell us what counties in Florida you were able to reach?
3: Yeah,
1: so we, we got respondents from pretty much all of the primary urban areas. Um, so there was a nexus in the area where you are in Tampa Bay, um, a little bit in Southwest, as well as a lot in um, Miami-Dade county in the orlando area and jacksonville and then um, we got responses from both um, tallahassee and gainesville um interestingly there there seems to be a, an interest in urban agriculture in those um, cities as well
2: and what type of operations are they running are they going to farmers markets are they selling them through their stores are CSAs. they offering u picks yeah CSAs. Right? yeah
1: yeah so many of them um, you know, they're all primarily selling through direct to consumer kinds of um, outlets. So that includes, you know, farm stands and farmers markets, as you mentioned, as well as community supported agriculture. Again, as you mentioned, um, those are their primary means of sales. Um, and I think, you know, part of the reason for that is they want to take advantage of their proximity to their urban areas and the urban consumers. Um, and I think, You know, again, the sort of theme of community connections with urban agriculture. I think they're seeking to connect with their consumers and vice versa. And that's why they're they're taking advantage of those direct to consumer kinds of sales rather than for example, selling to a grocery store. Yeah, you know, um, the profit's going to be so small with that, right? That's exactly right. They get much less of a a cut of that food dollar um, if they're selling that way. Plus,
3: you know, being, uh, talking to the person you're buying the food from, and there's uh, there's that personal exchange, and that's a huge thing. You know, I wanted to say something. I was reading all this stuff, of course, and one of the things it said was like uh, food trucks, which not meaning that they're cooking food trucks, but that they're bringing the food to areas. And I was like... I don't see that at all. And today on the way over here, I saw a van, which I'm sure he had food in and he had a trailer with slanted parts with all the fruits and vegetables in it that he was going into a neighborhood. And I was thinking, uh-huh. food desert, here we come. That's the way to go. And I yep. didn't even put that together. Is That's probably something that's happening again now, you know? Yeah,
1: that's... Um so they call those mobile markets, mobile markets. Um, but that, that has been a, a solution that people have um, tried to adopt for a- addressing the food desert areas or areas that are um, limited resource populations with limited access to healthy food. People can very often use their SNAP dollars, their um, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program dollars, And there's a program um, that used to be run by Florida Organic Growers, but now is run by Feeding Florida, where those limited resource populations can double their um, food assistance benefits if they're buying fresh produce. And so it really helps to make it more affordable for them. And then again, it it in turn helps our local farmers by giving them another outlet uh, for their produce.
2: That's so great. I want to remind listeners that this is the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF, Tampa 88.5. Today's guest is Catherine Campbell. We're talking about commercial urban agriculture in Florida, specifically the needs, opportunities, and barriers. And if you want to be part of this conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at at dj.wmnf.org and we will read it on air because we want to know... What you guys, your experience with urban agriculture?
3: Yeah, and if you grow yourself, and what do you do with it? Do you sell it? Yeah, you know, do you seek it out? I went to Meacham Farms uh, on Saturday, and I had done a pre-order and got food. And they're they're selling for other people because they don't have stuff right now, but they're getting ready to replant. But and that, Meacham Farms is indoors. Uh, no, Meacham Farms is between Ybor City. No,
2: indoors. Are they growing stuff?
3: Oh, they they have a greenhouse that they're starting the seeds from, if that's what you mean. And then they do have some covered uh, areas that are open uh, that they plant a lot of things in to protect it.
2: Mm-hmm. But
3: they have some open space, too. They have a lot going on.
2: It's a great place, actually. All uh, right. We do have two emails. Annie? Yeah? I think they're for you. Oh, okay. <laughs> so... Uh,
3: Telling but- me not to talk so much. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no. Not, not not these emails. Not that so guy. Okay. uh we have an email from uh Marinella. She wants to know, is Jim K. the oh. same guy from Maine? And yes. my husband and I were just talking about him last night and how much we miss him. Yes, so he'll be
3: back in October.
2: I was just going to say, can you tell yeah, them Yeah, he, he comes schedule? back in
3: October and he leaves in May. So what'll happen is he planted uh, uh, sweet potatoes. So he'll come in and clear that and have all the sweet potatoes. He'll bring onions and all kinds of cool things and wonderful uh, teas that he'll... His uh, girlfriend makes up there she's a, a hunter gatherer. She's wonderful. Okay. And uh, so then we can get them from him then.
2: And then another, another follow up to that was he used to sell a hard neck garlic.
3: Yeah. He'll bring that probably. Uh, that's what all the things that he grows up there that he can't grow down here, he'll bring. Uh, and then he'll sell that in the first part. That's what tides him over till he can get his, uh, his
2: uh, seeds started. All right. So, and then uh, the other email. Good
3: questions. (laughs) Yes.
2: Thank you. The other email is from Doug in Clearwater. And uh, Catherine, I don't know if, I don't know your expertise, but you're welcome to answer it. He said he's recently visited his extension office and got the paperwork on, you know, what to grow. But he just wants to ask when is like a great time to start planting, you know, edibles? And what are some of the easiest things to grow successfully now? that it's the end of August. So Catherine, do you have any insight into that?
1: Well, um, so I'm primarily a social scientist. And so yeah. I do home garden, but I'm I'm not the, the We can back you up on, on that.
3: We, yeah. we can back you up. You want us to back you up yeah. on that? Well, and I,
1: you know, I do think going to your local extension office because, you know, I'm in Gainesville and getting that local recommendation for what you should grow in your particular area and climate. Yes. um, Would be beneficial.
3: Yeah. The zone is very important. Yeah. Very important. Uh, But we, uh, I will be starting my seeds. uh, They're starting to meet them because it's big production, but I'll be starting my seeds next month uh, and I'll be planting in October. So there's that.
2: And and what, are, you're planting um, well, like I'll be, co- cold weather crops?
3: Yeah, I'll be throwing in some uh, broccoli, Some I'll probably try some cauliflower, uh, I, but I'll do tons of lettuce, tomatoes, um, uh, arugula, I'll do kale, you know, all those green things that I love. If you
2: think of a garden, you usually plant... You know when you what think what you want, yeah. Well, yeah, what do you but want to eat? Yeah. pretty much like everything you think of as a garden, that's like a good time to plant in the fall for Florida.
3: Yeah, fall is regular plant time yeah. for us. You know, like uh, the northern folks, what they grow in the north in the yes. summer, we grow in the winter. Yeah. And it's really hard to get your brussels sprouts <laughs> to form up because it's such a long cold period. But if you start early and you keep them in a cooler area, you maybe get some brussels sprouts at the end of the year, maybe,
2: maybe. All right. So, Catherine, can you summarize the demographics of a typical Florida urban uh, farmer, or is this possible? Is there a lot of diversity within this group?
1: Um, yeah. So, there's a they're they're a little bit different um, in some ways as compared with our traditional um, rural farmers. They there is a similarity in terms of them primarily being white and non-Hispanic, but other than that, there are a higher proportion of um, minority farmers. They are fairly highly educated, more than 70% of the farmers that we heard from in the survey had a bachelor's or master's degree or more. Mm -hmm. Um, And they uh, tend to be what are considered beginning farmers by the USDA. Um, which are people who have been farming for 10 years or less, so more than half of them. Um, and so you're getting less of that sort of intergenerational farming kind of family where people are, grow up on a farm and continue to farm. Um, and they also tend to be a little bit younger, um, with about half of them being under 50, um, which you know, I, I guess some people might not realize that that's young, but our, is our farming population <laughs> is, you know, the standard farmers are, I think, um, over 65, mm-hmm. approaching 70 yeah. years old. So it's nice that there's a little bit more younger interest it's- in It's it's
3: interesting what you're talking about, too, because it makes me know that they're not trapped in what their granddaddy did. You know what I mean? Like their granddaddy did it this way. My daddy did it this way. And so I'm doing it this way. And even if it's not the best way for the plants, the soil, the environment. uh, So they continue on that thread, whereas the younger, more educated people, I would think, would be more apt to look at alternative ways. Mm -hmm.
1: And they they're. I think you know they're they're open-minded they're looking for new sources of information and that's part of what you know we at the University of Florida are trying to be able to serve these needs to provide them with the information they need about you know what crops will grow well what are the you know, best management practices for taking care of the soil and using um, appropriate chemicals um, you know and those kinds of things where they're they're open to receive knowledge about the new and best ways to do um, their farming practices.
3: And you provide that information, the new and better ways to do it? The,
1: yeah, the University of Florida extension offices, there's one in every county um, and there are extension agents that work with commercial producers and can help them, you know, what the recommendations from the Florida Department of Agriculture are on, you know, using fertilizers appropriately to protect water quality, um, as well as information, um, I guess, Harking back to the previous question of, you know, what is the, what are the best crops to grow? What's going to be most successful? When, when to start them? Mm-hmm. Um, those kinds of things yeah. as well.
3: So the extensions, uh, the extension agents, yeah, those are, they are valuable, wonderful people. <laughs> yes. They really know a lot and give so much.
2: Yeah. Before the show, I was mentioning that I went to yeah. my extension office with uh, seven Ziploc bags of. Diseased plants, right? And they're gonna identify them,
3: which is and for free, right? Oh, that we're not supposed to talk about anything that has to do with money
2: <laughs> every time,
3: even though it's not—it's it's zero money. It's the same in the category. So let's <laughs> put the zipper on my mouth.
2: But the service they do is very. Nice.
3: It is nice. Because... And giving, you know? Yeah,
2: I was mentioning to the person, because I'm considered a, like a hobby Mm farm, and they were saying, you know, a lot of people go on social media, and they're like, hey, what's this disease, or what's this pest? And then you get all these... Non
3: knowledgeable people uh, saying whatever they think. I uh, so many times that was like my favorite thing when I was on Facebook <laughs> for people to ask, uh, and then you get like a million crazy. I, I think it's that was da, like da, da. I love to do that because I'm pretty good <laughs> at it. So I miss that part. But you were gonna say,
2: all right. So Catherine, uh, we were talking about alternatives and and uh, maybe more modern. T- well, actually, these aren't really that modern because. Uh, I think like ancient South Americans and Mexicans were using agriculture and hydroponics for thousands of years. But in your research, Catherine, are people growing in their front yards as commercial urban agriculture, like uh, Annie's friend Jim, or are they are they growing stuff indoors? Or are they using uh, like, hydroponics? Like which is the primary? Yeah. What are these? Yeah.
1: I mean, that's that's a really good question. So the sh- the short answer is they're doing all of those things um and um you know what we're finding is they're primarily growing in ground you know in beds rows or fields um but virtually all of them were doing three or four different types of production so they would be doing some in ground they would be um you know as you mentioned the beechum farm also has a greenhouse where they're starting some things um, and so, you know, they're doing a little bit of greenhouse, a lot in the ground. Some of them are also doing hydroponics. Um, so what what you're seeing is these are very small operations that are doing a diversity of different kinds of production systems, as well as growing a diversity of, you know, kinds of crops. So it's not just one large scale one single crop, one type of production system. It's diversified vegetables, diversified production systems, um, and that's what makes you know getting them getting good information difficult because they need information on a lot of different things.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's amazing what you can do with just a big tank of fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how you Small can, space. Yeah, small space, tank of fish, uh, feed the, uh, use that hydroponically and, and uh, you know, feed your lettuces or whatever. And then I don't know if you eat fish, but I do. And then you can eat them as they get,
2: mm-hmm. uh, you know, too many in the space. I went to South Africa to a tilapia farm. And they're you are so, interesting. <laughs> and they have so many <laughs> grant opportunities for people in South Africa, and maybe I think it was multiple countries in Africa, because they want in you know uh, in do. desert areas you can grow tilapia in small tanks and small amount of water, and then you can also do it hydroponically. But tilapia are from Africa, okay. and they want to kind of brand it like champagne, like champagne can only be from France.
3: Oh, Asti Spamati. Yeah, early, so oh,
2: they were saying like. You know some people think tilapia is like a garbage fish because it depends on what you feed the tilapia. Well, absolutely it depends as, as on in everything yeah. right. So but it was really inspiring that they were you know growing a local a native fish and they were teaching people how to yeah. do it to make money.
3: That's wonderful. To be healthy. You did did you decide say that they were giving grants to do that? Is that what you said? Sid? And
2: yeah, I think it was three or four different countries. I, I want in to bring Africa. something
3: up because uh, Kitty Wallace, our lovely Kitty Wallace, told me, and she wanted me to ask you this as well: uh, Is that if you guys did, knew about grants? Because she was telling me about the USDA are starting grants for urban agricultural innovative products, <laughs> and you can apply for a grant for that. Uh, do y'all do you know anything about uh, getting grants for these small farmers or anything like that?
1: Yes, I I do. And So USDA in 2020 put their first call ever for grants for urban agriculture, which is great that they're, they're, you know, helping to support that um, initiative financially. And the first two years uh, only producers or um, cities or municipalities could apply. So researchers like myself weren't able to apply. Um, And then just this year, um, in in September is the first call that they're allowing uh, researchers to also apply. So but,
3: you're, mm-hmm, you you said municipalities and what else? Uh, and in the farmers themselves. Oh, so um, a, a farmer can apply then. And how, yeah. I wonder what the criteria for the farmer to apply is.
1: That is, I think it depends on the specific calls so they'll put out a call um, every year that says, you know, we have this amount of funding. This is who is allowed to apply, and this is what we want them to do with it. So for example, the municipalities in that first round, they were looking for municipalities to do work on composting oh. in in their city. And so they, they awarded funds for people to do pilot projects on composting in their urban food systems. Um, Just as a for example. Wow.
3: I Um, wish I had known about that because I've been trying to get our recycling people to do that for years. Uh, So, how do you get tuned into that? I mean, I just really, this has opened up a big uh, can of worms for me, (laughs) basically. Uh, How do you contact the USDA and get on their list, or how does that work?
1: That would be a way. That would be a way to do it. You can sign up for some of these listserves. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also, you know, I, I feel like in you're asking this question, it's making me realize that there's probably a need that we yeah. can be filling at the University of Florida yeah, by
3: definitely. having some sort of. I want to get a great you know,
1: <laughs> email, an email list, or providing that information. Um, I have a new um, community food systems and urban agriculture website um, mm-hmm. on the UF website, but it, it could be that I could have some sort of a listserv that comes out to let people know when grants are available and who can apply for them. Yeah, that
3: would be great because that's the mm-hmm. the main thing about grants is, is you don't know they're there. Mm-hmm. And if you, yep. you know, and, and so they're just waiting for people to use them and the people that really need them are really the ones that don't know about it. So that's a fantastic
2: uh, idea. Thank you for All starting right. that, that
3: <laughs> light bulb. I
2: could do that. Yeah. yeah. That's great. So, Catherine, are you scared, or should we be scared by the fact that a lot of uh, these urban farmers only have ten years or less experience? <laughs>
3: <laughs> I, don't, I, some people I mean, learn fast. <laughs> yeah, I, th-
1: I don't. I don't think we should be worried about that. And I think you know the fact that they're a little bit younger. I, I think potentially bodes well for the future of. Of urban food production, mm-hmm. um, helping it to integrate a little bit more into our communities, which is important for resilience during supply chain disruptions, as we've all yes. been experiencing. Um, you know, if you're when the initial COVID nineteen shutdowns happened, um, we all saw the empty, you know, grocery mm-hmm. store shelves, as well as we saw those really large farms that were having to plow their crops back under because there yep. weren't markets for them. But a lot of same with really livestock, small,
3: yeah,
1: yeah, and a lot of these really small producers, um, you know, that are doing direct sales to consumers saw a huge boom.
3: Yes, um,
1: and they were able to pivot. You know, maybe farmers' markets shut down, but then they were doing, you know, where people could drive by and pick things up. And yep. yeah, you know, I, I think there's a real benefit to having folks that are a little bit younger, a um, little more you know new to it maybe and again another thing we saw in the survey was that fewer of them had an agriculture background so some of them had a business or a marketing background um and so you know, they're, they're approaching it with a little bit of a different mindset, which is allowing them to do a little more innovation, I think.
3: You know, being I, tech savvy too was really a, a big plus for younger people because uh, we had, I can't remember her name, she was on here and she was putting together all the farms and all the people that had food mm-hmm. and then you could go into the site and punch out where you want to be and what food you're looking for and it would connect you. And mm-hmm. uh, I can't remember to say myself. soul. Jillian
2: Rebecca Childs. Oh, you're
3: so good, Kenny. Thank you. So it uh, little computers in our hand. Those are the <laughs> best things, aren't they? But uh, yeah, it was because of the tech savvy a bit. And I know I didn't lack any food because I was going
2: CSA with my friends. Florida, friendly Florida farm finder. That's a lot of Fs. <laughs> from Jillian Child. <laughs> All right. So we do have a caller. You we have
0: the F word. <laughs> we have
2: Monica from Tampa. Hi, Monica.
0: Hi. How are you guys? We're great. doing great. Um, great. Well, I just wanted to call in. I actually kind of work alongside Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Um, Hi, Monica. And, uh, <laughs> so I work for Hillsborough County Extension here. Oh, very um, good. In Tampa Bay. Yeah. And a lot of the things you guys have been talking about, especially with like <laughs> learning more about grants and how to write them and how to apply for them. And kind of like the different initiatives that are going on here is kind of like part of my forthcoming program. Oh, right. Um, and yeah. And so I actually kind of called in a few months ago when you all were talking about food distribution and food waste and, mentioned that sometime in the fall, hopefully October-ish. We're going to I be remember a, you now yep, that you're mentioning yep, this. Yeah, a food system program. Yeah, and so a lot of what we'll be doing is trying to take the information that Catherine and her colleagues um, at IFIS are like creating and disseminating and then trying to get them to be practically applied locally. Um, and so, yeah, grants are a big thing, and they are a lot of work, and they, they you do need generally a lot of help, especially because, Farmers aren't grant writers, and they don't really want to be grant writers, Um, but luckily, like, we have a community of people that would probably be happy to help them, Um, and so Homegrown Hillsboro is ultimately going to be just a food system program that helps coordinate various stakeholders so we can make, like, a unified roadmap and see what we want to get done and hopefully go accomplish it.
3: Monica, I am thrilled that you called. So I am going to call you today. Um, Okay. So you're going to be, how will I get in touch with the Hillsborough Extension Office?
0: Uh, Yep, yep, yep. I'm on the website there, and you can probably just give me a Google. Um, And then I work really closely with Kitty Wallace. Um, Oh, love her. I know that she generally kind of calls in and does, like, events and stuff at the end of the show. Is she going to do that today?
3: Well, no, I just talked to her this morning. I was going to announce it. Do you have something you want to talk about?
0: Well, I wanted to give a plug for the coalition's conference. Um, yes, that's what I
3: was going to yeah. announce. Uh,
0: okay, great. Yeah. So no, go first, ahead. Go ahead. Mo- go for it.
2: Monica, we have upgraded you to special An events. Answer. We're going An to get you on
3: board. <laughs> I'm going to call and talk to you all about this. So tell me, well, tell I, us about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so the Coalition of Community Gardens, which was co-founded by Kitty and Lena, um, is a network of probably, I think, like 24-ish gardens here in the Tampa Bay area. And, um, every year they have an annual conference. This is the fifth annual and this year they're doing something really fun, which is on Friday. They're having just like a uh, socializing.
3: Uh, no, uh, 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 to no, 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 no. That's <laughs> not for everybody. It's not. No, it's not. Oh. That's an invite. Uh, Saturday is the deal. Okay. Uh, okay so he well, didn't say where that. it was. So that was good.
0: Uh, so go ahead with well, Saturday. everyone <laughs> can register online. Oh,
3: well, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, I'll let her know. So there's an
0: Eventbrite. People can register, and the I think the ideal target would be for like communities that are ready to organize a community garden. Correct. So and people, for, that, yeah, people to get their hands dirty. Right. 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 Yeah, I, I think it's more for people that are oriented towards trying to get a community garden started or to um, support their community garden. Yeah, because it's so, a
2: limited space. That they're yeah. going to have it at. Did so, you, Annie? Did you say this was in the Tampa Bay Times or no? Uh,
3: yeah, it was in Tampa Bay Times on Sunday. I'm going to get uh, our Colleen, our uh, uh, helper, to put this in a link on there too. But it's going to be at uh, on Saturday, April 27th, from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Tampa Heights Community Center. But it's actually uh, the Tampa Heights. Uh, not not community centers. Tampa Heights Young People Community Something Center. So but it's on um it's uh let's see. It's on Lamar Avenue. It's two zero zero five North Lamar Avenue, uh Tampa three three six oh two.
2: But Monica, if you go to Eventbrite and you type in what, and then you can register.
0: Uh Coalition uh, Existing. Grow Gardens Conference is the okay. name. The Grow Gardens Conference is the name of it. Yeah,
3: um, it's got to be great. Yeah. They have some good is, speakers yeah. that are going to be there too. So, mm-hmm.
0: oh, well, I'm so glad yeah. you called. <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, it's been great. I actually have Catherine's article printed on my desk, and I'm going to read it nice. today. So thanks for giving me the uh, sparks notes, but I'm still going <laughs> to dive into it. Yay. All right.
2: Great. Thank you, Monica. Thanks for doing that research. Thanks for
0: you all, and hopefully talk to you all soon. Thank Appreciate you.
2: Appreciate it. Bye-bye. All right. So, that Catherine. That was great. That was wonderful. Um, Catherine, when you are doing the survey and you did your research, were you able to identify the goals or the motivation of urban farmers? Because I'm hearing that, you know, there's people that are young, not maybe younger, but they're also less experienced. Do you know if they're concerned about social issues more? Or are they worried they, about the ecosystem? Do they, they want to make are. money? <laughs> well, so, you know, as I said, it, the in order to
1: respond to the survey, they had to have some commercial component. Um, and as part of the survey, we asked them what their top goals were. And it was interesting that making a profit came in third, Um, given that these are commercial producers, but they still, so the number one response was that they were interested in increasing, uh, food access or food security. And then second, just behind the food access was environmental sustainability. And so those came in ahead of making a profit. Um, and then the, the thing that came in fourth was strengthening communities and supporting health. And so I think what you see from these farms is that they really are concerned with being a part of the community, ensuring people have access to healthy local food, um, being sustainable. Many of them said they want to be able to show that um, farming and being sustainable are not contradictory things. Mm -hmm. They're interested in building soil, um, being responsible, and, you know, helping to connect connect communities back to food systems in a way that, um, you know, maybe we've sort of fallen away from in the last, I don't know, century. Yeah, yeah
2: century. That's a good Can one. we summarize urban agriculture as sustainable? Are all of these practices sustainable well, or not necessarily?
1: I think many of them are striving to be. Um, and so, you know, as, as all agriculture, you know, it's all in sort of how, how you implement it. Um, but I think a lot of them are conscious about being sustainable, and it's and you know to some extent, it's important because they are so close to you know other residences and things that they they need to be sure that they're not damaging the water quality, not you know potentially spraying things that are going to drift over in other people's yards um so there's there's a higher bar i think in in how they're doing what they're doing. Um, because it's so close to where people are living and working.
3: That's interesting when you say uh, about the drift. Uh, mine's the opposite. I, have, I live in a neighborhood, uh, and uh, people spray their yards. Uh, they have chemical services that come over, and it, it uh, drifts over into my organic gardens. Yeah,
2: but these stirrups. people are like spraying lawns, not yeah lawns, food. yeah
3: lawns. Uh, and, and in fact, I did, had a conversation with one guy, and he's spraying away from me. He's back, putting his back to me, but I don't know, <laughs> you know, how much that
2: works. I don't know if the air air par- particles I, follow that rule.
3: I really think that I've noticed
2: a, a, a lessening in my pollinators. So oh. I know it makes me sick. so, uh, Catherine. In addition to financial barriers, are there other difficulties or other barriers for urban agriculture farmers?
1: Yeah, so there I I mentioned a little bit before, you know, they struggle a little bit with access to land or affordable access to land with all of the land development. Um, Land costs are going up and, you know, potential places where they could put a farm are just becoming too expensive for them to buy the land. Um, And then additionally, land is getting um, zoned away from agriculture. Yeah. So what could have been a place where you could do agriculture before has been rezoned to residential, Mm. um, partially again for the the development. And then the the last sort of barrier that I've seen and the farmers had talked about was dealing with um, zoning and land use regulations that don't anticipate farming. You know, it's not that they're explicitly disallowed, but it it just isn't part of um, a lot of the way they were thinking when they did zoning um, and land use regulations and codes of ordinances. And so that's something that they struggle with um, that I think um, Monica, who just called in, is also sort of working to help eliminate some of those barriers to allow food production, you know, responsible food production to happen in cities.
3: Yeah, because, you know, people are doing, I mean, they changed the law to where you could have your your vegetable garden in the front yard. But I do know that a lot of people still have struggles with that, you know, because people Mm -hmm. want a certain look in their neighborhood.
2: Do you know if Mm -hmm. that law is for commercial Urban that's what I was wondering as well. Just residential. I don't
3: know. Is that something that if you go commercial, if you sell, it, does that uh, take you out of the running on that? It's it it changes your status yeah. by
1: being commercial, um, and that's what the Florida Right to Farm Act protects um, commercial farms from nuisance suits and different kinds of regulations, and that is one reason that I think some local governments have been a little bit reluctant. To change policies because once they allow commercial production, it may give those farms right to farm protection, and they would lose the oh, ability to have. Oh, I see. It'll be like a loophole
3: of kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah, yep. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. We're such a litigious <laughs> society.
2: Yeah. All right. So, Catherine, we only got thirty seconds left for you. Can you tell us how consumers, of Florida, how they could help support urban agriculture farmers? Like what? Yeah, the- I
1: think. You know, learn about where your urban farms are. Contact your extension office. They can help you find some small farms uh, when you can buy locally. Do so. Help yeah. support those producers. Um, and, you know, if if you have any ability to attend public meetings to help increase in your local government, their awareness that you think food is important and should be a part of your local policies and ordinances um that would help as well
2: very good thank you katherine you're a wonderful guest it really was thank you and so much well, it was Wonderful. thank you for having me on thank you pleasure. we appreciate it
3: Uh, All right, I'm going to close this out. It would be my turn today. I'm Annie. Uh, If you enjoyed this show and our weekly content, please consider going to WMNF.org, donating through the tip jar and directing your donation to Sustainable Living Show. Your donation helps keep us on the air. Stick around for next hour to hear WMNF, Tampa's Monday music with Flea. If you want to hear more public interest programming, you can switch over to WMNF's HD3 channel. To source, to listen to today's Tom Hartman show live, Tune in next Monday morning at 11 for this next Sustainable Living Show, where we'll be talking about water conservation and irrigation with Jackie Libwitz. Follow our Facebook page, Sustainable Living, WMNF to stay in the loop. I'm Annie Ellis.
2: And I'm Kenny Coogan. Remember, if you're looking for someone to save the world, look in the mirror.
3: Bye. Bye.